This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Yes. There were the usual high-profile stories in Michigan this week. More executive orders from the governor, some headed in the right direction, some not. Yes, the world's number one tonsorial titan, Carl Mankey, the demon barber of Main Street in Owasso, last I knew, continues to cut hair despite all efforts by Big Gretch and Attorney General Dana Nessel and the courts to shut him down. Yes. There were demonstrations in various Michigan communities, most of them peaceful, about the tragic murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis by a police officer last week. And, in fact, one of these protests here in Michigan went viral worldwide because Genesee County Sheriff Chris Swanson emerged as a hero in the way he handled things in Flint Township that might have gotten out of hand. There's still more hand-wringing about the dam breaks north of Midland last month that resulted in catastrophic flooding, and Michigan is starting to open up for business once again against arguably the most severe shutdown of any state in the entire country. We'll address most of those issues later in the program with some guests, but I want to concentrate on something that has gotten too little attention, way too little, for the last three months. How many deaths has the economic shutdown caused in Michigan and in this country? Has anybody tried to calculate that? Could it actually be worse than deaths caused by COVID-19? Well, three men with impressive credentials as physicians, professors, engineers, and business experts have gotten together and produced some actual data to put things in a little better perspective for us. These academic experts are strewn across the globe. One is a professor at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. Another is a dean's fellow at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And another is a physician and senior fellow at Stanford University. Here is what they say. They say that the past century has witnessed three pandemics with at least 100,000 U.S. fatalities. The famous Spanish flu, 1918-1919, with between 20 million and 50 million fatalities worldwide, including 675,000 in the United States. Then there was the Asian flu, it was called, in 1957-58, with about 1.1 million deaths worldwide. Then there were 116,000 of those in the U.S. in that 57 pandemic. Then in 1968 through as long as 72, this is over four years, the so-called Hong Kong flu with about 1 million people worldwide, including 100,000 in the U.S. So far, as of now, today, the current pandemic has produced just over 100,000 U.S. deaths, but the reaction 
of a near-complete economic shutdown is unprecedented. The lost economic output in the U.S. alone is estimated to be 5% of gross national product or $1.1 trillion for every month of the economic shutdown. This lost income results in lost lives as the stresses of unemployment and providing basic needs increase the incidence of suicide, alcohol, or drug abuse, and stress-induced illnesses. These effects are particularly severe on the lower-income populace as they are more likely to lose their jobs and mortality rates are much higher for lower-income individuals. Statistically, every $10 million to $24 million lost in U.S. incomes results in one additional death. One portion of this effect is through unemployment, which leads to an average increase in mortality of at least 60%. That translates into 7,200 lives lost per month among the 36 million newly unemployed Americans, over 40% of whom are not expected to regain their jobs. In addition, many small business owners are near financial collapse, creating lost wealth that results in mortality increases of 50%. So get this, with an average estimate of one additional lost life per $17 million income loss, that would translate to 65,000 lives lost in the United States for each month because of the economic shutdown. That is way more than the mortality rate from coronavirus. Moreover, in addition to lives lost because of lost income, lives also were lost due to delayed or foregone health care and both the shutdown and the fear it creates among patients. From personal communications with neurosurgery colleagues, about half of their patients have not appeared for treatment of disease, which, left untreated, risks brain hemorrhage, paralysis, or death. These unintended consequences of missed health care amount to more than 500,000 lost years of life per month. That's half a million lost years of life per month, not including all the other known skipped care. If we only consider unemployment-related fatalities from the economic shutdown, that would total at least an additional 7,200 lives per month. Assuming these deaths occur proportionally across the ages of current U.S. mortality data and equally among men and women, this amounts to more than 200,000 lost years of life for each month of the economic shutdown. So these three experts argue that policymakers combating the effects of COVID-19 way back at the start of the year, if not earlier, should have recognized and considered the full impact of their decisions. They needed to be aware of the devastating effects in terms of lost life from shutting down significant parts of the economy. The belated acknowledgement by policy leaders of irreparable harms from the lockdown is not nearly enough. They need to emphatically and widely inform the public of these serious consequences and reassure them of their concern for all human life by strongly articulating 
the rationale for reopening society. To end the loss of life from the economic lockdown, businesses as well as kindergarten through 12th grade schools, public transportation, parks, and beaches should smartly reopen with enhanced hygiene and science-based protection warnings for any in the high-risk population. For most of the country, that reopening should occur now without any unnecessary fear-based restrictions, many of which repeat the error of disregarding the evidence. By following a thoughtful analysis that finally recognizes all available actions and their consequences, we can save millions of years of American life. When the next pandemic is inevitably before us, we must remember these lessons and follow policies that consider the lives of all Americans from the outset. Let me just mention a couple of things more. With the national death toll from COVID-19 surpassing 100,000, that's a scary number. But stop and think that back in 1968 and 1957, we had at least that many deaths nationally from the flu, and the population was half as big in this country as it is today. So the per capita death rate of the pandemics at the end of the 20th century were actually at this point worse than the one we're experiencing right now. There's much more to this story. We got some very impressive guests coming up. Stay tuned. I'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned and we have with us Scott Ellis, who is the executive director of the Michigan Licensed Beverage Association, MLBA. Uh, Thanks for being our guest, Scott Ellis. Thanks, Bill. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, now, you know, the hospitality industry of which you're a part has been hammered. Uh, There was a meeting this week of the House Regulatory Reform Committee. Somebody there testifying said, quote, it's as bad as you can imagine. There is going to be a giant wave of bankruptcies coming very, very soon, unquote. And you were there and testified, and I believe somebody from the Michigan Spirits Association, the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, and you're all pleading for help from the legislature Can you just tell me how bad has it been in the last two to three months for you guys, and where are we going from here? Um, Bill, I mean, one of the ways to put it is 2008 looked great compared to this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, we have have, thousands of members, and several of them are a gigantic portion. Their sales are down 100%. Um, They're just closed. And so the, the, the fear is real. And what everybody has to remember as well is just because we get the okay to open after two and a half months and, and uh, doesn't mean that everybody's, one, going to rush back. Two, we're at limitations of 50%. And I don't know any business model in any industry that says, hey, we can survive at 50%. Um, so it is real. We are our last survey. We're talking up to 30, maybe even more percent that they may never reopen. Wow. That yeah. is really deadly. Uh, well, okay. There is maybe possibly help on the way from the legislature a little bit? What's going on there? 
Well, we have some great package of bills. Um, we have Senate Bill 942 in, in the Senate. And then, of course, we have two over um, in the House with Representative uh, Sarah Anthony and Representative uh, and Chairman Weber. That uh, Representative Weber, that are just amazing bills. And Representative Weber's is that social district uh, drinking bill where we can have social districts in the communities and people can go from establishment to establishment with a beer in their hand. We can maybe have some outside entertainment, but it allows it for people to be outside, which we know in this industry is going to be key because people are still nervous. There's no vaccine and they feel safer outside. So Chairman Weber has been, chair, has been the champion of this social district bill and it's huge. And we think we have some really good momentum going forward. Uh, and then we have Representative Anthony's bills, which is a cocktail to go bill, which is gigantic because uh, a lot of, you know, we make a lot of craft cocktails. I own Michigan Distillery in Lansing and we are, we're known for our craft cocktail. But people, again, want to grab some stuff and have it at home and not necessarily be in the location. We think there's still going to be some nervousness, and we're only limited to 50%. So that bill is gigantic to allow us to make these craft cocktails, still keep our brand out there, and people to participate in it. Um, and then a couple of highlights in Senator Nesbitt's bill. Um, in the state of Michigan, um, the state of Michigan is the wholesaler of spirits, and everybody buys from the state, and they market up 65%. Um, very big markup that the state takes that revenue. And a licensee, when they purchase from the state to sell to the re to the public, it's a 17% discount. We're pushing for a temporary 30% discount so our members and our retailers, can uh, on-premise retailers, can make more of a profit to make up for the three months of zero income. And that one could be really, really big for us. The state tried to give us some money through a buyback. Didn't, it worked out okay, um, but otherwise there's been no relief to the on-premise licensee, the bars and restaurants in the state of Michigan. Well, I noticed with respect to Senator Nesbitt's bill, you used the word temporary. And I'm wondering, um, are these bills in toto anything that you would have pushed for or have pushed for in the past without the coronavirus epidemic? Or are these totally a product of the epidemic? And are they temporary in the sense that once the epidemic hopefully goes away, if it ever does, uh, they'll be suspended or there's going to be some sunset. So the cocktails to go is not temporary. That one, is, and it did come out of COVID. We realized that we really needed this. We, people are changing their habits. Even when we go back to normal, there's still going to be a lot of carryout. So that one is, 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 a, is a result of COVID. However, um, that's a permanent one. Um, Senator, I'm sorry, Representative Weber's bill, the social districts, we did start working on that about a year and a half ago. Um, trying to create these for the industry, but now it's really shown more of a need in the cities. The municipalities are very supportive. In fact, they're big champions behind it now because it allows them to do, bring more people to their downtowns and have people outside and give more flexibility. So that one is was before, but it's also get, it's got its boost because of COVID. The 30% um, reduction versus, you know, it originally was 17%, that is temporary because obviously we know the state budget cannot take a hit. And this would be part of the state budget. So taking that 17% to 30 is, in essence, kind of giving some grants to these re on-premise retailers, but they still have to earn it by selling it. Okay, so basically we're just increasing their profit margin. And that is a temporary one, and that is also as a result of COVID. When we talk about the Michigan Licensed Beverage Association, how much overlap is there between you guys and, let's say, the Michigan Spirits Association, the Michigan Beer and Wine Wholesalers? I mean... What is your organization exactly? Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah. 
I'm glad you asked that because that's very important to us. The MLBA has been around since 1939, and we represent the independent owner. The small mom and pops across the state, there's 8,500 on-premise licensees from hotels, from everything. Basically, on-premise means you can drink there. And we represent over 2,000, um, which seems, you know, maybe it's not the biggest chunk of it, but we don't, we don't have a lot of chain restaurants in ours. We are the small mom and pop. And you also, to be a member of ours, you must have a liquor license. The other organizations, uh, restaurant lodging, obviously, they can represent a McDonald's, a Subway, and all those. We, our members, are, are you have to have a liquor license to be a member, so you have to be in the alcohol business. Um, and so we're a, a large group, and we're on every, one, every corner and every little town across, across Michigan, north and south and all over. And uh, they're the ones that, you know, they don't have the big money behind them to ride out three months' worth of, of closure. They're, they're living on their cash that maybe they were smart enough to save. Um, and it's truly a cash business, cash flow business. So we're really proud of that. And uh, the beer wine wholesalers, they represent the people that deliver the beer, they, the, the Millers and the Budweiser delivery companies. Restaurant lodging, obviously, do restaurants, hotels, and that type of thing. And spirits, they represent a uh, majority of the big uh, spirits associate, or spirits manufacturers, Jim Beam, uh, Jack Daniels, those type of groups. And then we have the Craft Distillers, Michigan Craft Distillers Association, who represent the majority of, um, obviously, the craft distillers in the state of Michigan. MLBA encompasses all those. We, we, there, we have a ton of hotels, a ton of spirits, you know, distilleries and, and breweries. And so we kind of take it. If you're in alcohol, we're here for you. Well, whatever differences you may have had with any of your counterparts in the hospitality industry in the past, I imagine you're all on the same page right now, right? You know, Bill, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, do we still have some philosophical differences? Absolutely. And, and part of that was in the uh, Senate bill with 942, where it allows a uh, on-premise to purchase from an off-premise purchase spirits because of supply chain issues, and that was a battle. And um, we had tried to do something with that prior to COVID because there were delivery issues, and you may have heard there were shortages and that type of thing, but it was really delivery issues. And we had battles, unfortunately, with the beer wine wholesalers who uh, think it's an attack on the three-tiered system. And based on COVID and the things we got going on and our concern of future uh, supply chain issues, we were able to sit down with the wholesalers and negotiate a compromise, and you're right, we're all on the same page right now. Scott Ellis, you've done a great job of presenting the picture for the hospitality industry, and particularly Michigan Licensed Beverage Association. Thank you for being our guest, Scott Ellis. Thank you, sir. We will be back in a minute on a different topic, but one equally as dire. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have with us on the other line Riley Began. She's political reporter for Bridge Magazine. Riley Began, thank you for being our guest. Hey, thanks for having me. And I want to start by saying you and your compatriots at Bridge have done a series of really good stories on the break in the Edenville and 
Sanford Dams, the Titabawassee River, uh, northwest of Bay City, north of Midland, uh, that we've all been reading and hearing about for now, I think, into the third week. And I just want to ask you, uh, where do things stand up there right now? What about liability, accountability, uh, the dam owners? Uh, lawsuits I see have been filed now by Midland area residents against the dam owners and against the state. And uh, there's obviously a question about funding. How do you look at things right now? Yes, yeah, so there's a number of moving pieces here as people are trying to you know, figure out what happened and who's responsible for it. Um, as you mentioned, there are a number of lawsuits that include uh, class action lawsuits against the dam owner and against state alleging they didn't do enough um, to stop this from from happening. Um, there's also a, a congressional inquiry um, some of the, the Congress people uh, from Michigan are, are asking, you know, how this could have happened. So they sent some letters to uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, which is a, a long name for the group that is responsible at the federal level for monitoring hydroelectric dams, which is what the Edenville Dam was, um, you know, before 2018 for decades. In 2018, they revoked that license, so it went over into the hands of the state, which puts the state uh, under the microscope as well. So um, the the U.S. representatives also sent a letter to, to the state asking for more information about how this could have happened. Um, on top of that, there is a state-level inquiry Governor Gretchen Whitmer asked for an investigation to be launched into this, um, and that has been housed in Eagle, um, which has caused some controversy itself. You know, there are a lot of folks, um, Republicans at the state level, but also uh, dam experts and some folks on the ground in Midland that say this isn't appropriate. Um, there's a conflict of interest with them uh, heading up that investigation. The governor says that's normal and uh, sort of the the tack we have to take. Um, so those are that's kind of a broad overview of, of all of the things that are happening right now in terms of accountability. That's a very good overview. Um, is it possible there could be both? Uh, the state could conduct its own review through the environmental agency, Eagle, as you mentioned, but maybe at some point there could be some kind of independent inquiry. Is that possible? Sure. I mean, I think that's, that's definitely possible, and I think that's something that uh, a lot of folks are calling for. Um, I know the FERC, that federal agency, is also looking into it. Um, but, of course, as we mentioned, you know, they clearly have some involvement as well. Um, but, sure, I don't see any reason why they couldn't have a third-party investigator if, if they wanted to. I know that Governor Whitmer, when she toured Midland after the catastrophic flood, said, uh, I've got real problems, this is the governor speaking, with uh, private ownership of dams. Uh, she mm -hmm. indicated uh, maybe all these dams should be owned by uh, a public entity, by the state perhaps. And yet, when the state had a chance to really do something, uh, Governor Whitmer, as I understand it, cut funding for dam repair in her budget request to the legislature last Last year, the legislature restored it. So, I mean, they're kind of like two different stories here, ships passing in the night where, you know, the governor is claiming uh, the state ought to be in charge of these dams. Uh, these should not be in private hands. Uh, and yet when the state had a chance to do something, nothing was done. Uh, and in fact, let me ask you, even if the state had moved fast, 
in 2018 and 19 after the feds delicensed the dams. Uh, could anything have been done up to this point that would have prevented the disaster that happened just three weeks ago? Sure. So um, some of the reporting that I've done with my colleagues at Bridge has uh, looked into this. And, you know, like everybody else, we are trying to track uh, how this could have been prevented, where things fell through the cracks and stuff like that. Um, Our initial sort of analysis of this informed by experts that we've talked to across the country um, is that it seems initially like this is a regulatory failure on, on all levels. Um, like you mentioned, there really isn't a lot of funding for, for dam inspections in Michigan. There's only three people in the department, two inspectors um, and one supervisor that are responsible for more than a 1,000 dams in the state. Um, there are five that are at the risk level of the Edenville Dam that has to be uh, checked more regularly, but um, there's clearly a capacity issue there as well. Um, another issue that we're, we're facing here is that I, I don't know if you've heard much about Boyce Hydro, which is the company that, that owns the Edenville Dam and three yes. other dams in the Midland area. And he essentially, um, you know, kicked the can down the road on, on following FERC regulations for, you know, nearly 20 years. And before him, there were a couple other companies that did the same thing. Um, so there are legislators that argue, okay, there isn't enough money coming in from uh, from selling hydroelectric power, which makes it hard for them to to be able to make needed improvements. And then there's this question, uh, you know, the federal regulators not being able to actually uh, force compliance when you have a, a company like Boyce Hydro that doesn't make changes for decades. Um, you know, the, their only option, the nuclear option for them is to pull the hydroelectric uh, generating license, which essentially removes the possibility of, uh, of making any money off of this dam and then kick it into the hands of the state, which uh, has actually half as stringent requirements uh, for spillway capacity, which is something that protects against flooding. So um, there are a lot of issues at play here, and I think uh, you know we're trying to track down uh, what could have happened. Riley Began, what if there's another catastrophic rain in the next few weeks? I mean some uh, torrential downpour or maybe it lasts days. Could this happen all over again in the same place? Uh, have they got things fixed in those dams right now? I mean, is all the water gone? There's nothing to worry about uh, with this dam, but maybe somewhere else? What? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I, I don't think that things are fully fixed. It's a question right now about whether they are going to rebuild uh, the dam. It's it's an expensive endeavor. And I think to your point, you know, people are saying this is a historic flood. It's a 200-year flood. Uh, it's the worst flood in the history of the Midland area. Um, but what we're learning is because of climate change, um, these sorts of things are happening more and more frequently. So it raises the question of, you know, how can we improve our dam infrastructure in a way that can prepare against this stuff happening, happening more and more frequently? Um, is it likely that we will have another 200-year flood in the next uh, few months? I think probably not, but I'm no meteorologist, so um, we'll see what happens. But clearly, this stuff is happening more frequently than it used to when these dams were built in, like, the 1920s and 30s. What about the difference of opinion between the Attorney General Dana Nessel and the owners of uh, Boyce Hydro, the dams, um, 
on whether or not the level of water could have been lowered uh, as the dam owners claim they wanted. And they say uh, they were denied the ability to do that because Dana Nessel was worried about protecting mussels, uh, you know, literally uh, bivalves, mollusks uh, in the river. And uh, Dana Nessel said that's nonsense. That isn't the reason that they didn't uh, lower the water level. They had other reasons, all involving saving money for themselves. What about that? Yeah, I mean, you summed it up pretty well. Um, Boyce Hydro, which, again, is the owner of this dam, has a long history of raising and lowering the Wixom Lake level, um, which has has really angered the people who own homes on the lake and, and want to use it for boating and for other um, activities. So they essentially took it to court to try to, to set that lake level. Um, eventually, when it fell into the state's hands, what the state says is we were in the process of trying to fix the, uh, the dam infrastructure issue. And in the meantime, we were trying to make sure that uh, they keep these lake levels high. The state side was uh, we we forced this in the winter when there wasn't flooding uh, risk, and Boyce Hydro says that's disingenuous, and we wanted to protect safety. Um, right. I think some people would argue that they resisted safety regulations for years, so uh, it's sort of two sides of the same coin. Right. Riley Baggett, we could go on about this. My God, it's an unending story. It's going to be with us for months or years. Riley Began from Bridge Magazine did a great job giving us the story on Titabawassee River flood. Thank you, Riley Began. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have with us Amy Hawkins, who is owner of Generation Strategies Consulting Firm and also the founder of Police Week Michigan. Amy Hawkins, welcome to the Political Insider. Thank you, sir. It's a it's a huge honor to be with you. Thank Listen, you. Listen, uh, the honor is uh, mine, and our listeners, uh, I, I want to ask you here what you think. At this point, you are... Uh, in the sense, uh, under siege. Uh, Mm -hmm. Police are under siege. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, After the uh, death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the demonstrations and quasi or full-scale riots in various places around the country calls for the police to be disbanded. I actually heard somebody on Nashville national public radio last week saying you know we've only had police forces in this country since 1838 and that's not as long a period of time as chattel slavery has existed so let's just get rid of the police other people are saying defund the police i mean we have a a member of congress from michigan rashida Tlaib from detroit called for defunding the police which in essence would basically say abolish the police. So how do you respond to all this? I don't know. I'm probably like a lot of pro-police people. One, you're, as is true of the majority of police officers, I mean, our hearts are grieving with just on a number of fronts. Um, But I am probably representing a majority of Americans who feel very strongly about protecting the police. Just because you have one bad apple does not mean the whole bunch is bad. 
And the majority of police officers are amazing men and women who we, as everyday American citizens, call on in times of crisis. And I think that I just, it is, it is very, I'm with you, like hearing the defund police movement is, it puts you at a loss for words. You're just like, can you imagine a society without any form of rule of law and law enforcement? It would be a very sad day. Well, let me ask you this. What about the charges that there is systemic racism rampant in various police departments? Maybe not all of them, maybe not in most of them, but throughout the country and here in Michigan, there is racism and it's subtle and under the radar, but it manifests itself at key junctures. The black community consistently feels threatened. Have you encountered that in your interaction with the police over the course of your work over the years? Well, personally, I have not. Um, I am a you know middle-class white woman who has been very blessed with the interactions that I've had for law enforcement. I think the majority of law enforcement would say no. there is no perfection, and they are always working to strive to improve. From what I've observed with law enforcement, the good men and women, like our mutual friend Sheriff Mike Bouchard, they want to know if there is a discrepancy in an, in a police encounter. So they want to know if you've had a bad experience, if you felt like you were mistreated. I think what American citizens need to do is, and this is no slam to you, Mr. Ballinger, but I think a lot of the media, they are getting caught up in certain headlines. And what we as responsible American citizens need to do is we need to push back and ask the harder questions. That when there are these facts that are put out there, we need to say, what is your source? Um, where are you getting this information from? What is the, what is the research? Sure, are there, are there departments that, you know, are handling things poorly? Absolutely. But are there, you know, medical facilities that are handling things poorly? Are there media sources? So we all, I have had an amazing experience with police. I think the majority of Americans have had incredible experience with police of all races, of all backgrounds. Um, you know, I, I love seeing the black men and women who decide to step up to serve in law enforcement. Um, I love seeing, you know, the white officers. There's all these amazing good stories online of even the white officers who are going into the minority communities and building relationships. I think that we as American citizens need to be cautious to get back to our own local communities. We can hear the headlines. But what do we see happening in the day-to-day experience? And the majority of officers are doing incredible jobs to serve the minority and the majority communities. I think everybody would agree there's a good way and a bad way to yeah. handle every uh, altercation or confrontation or incident uh, when it involves crime or alleged crime. I mean, there was one really good example of a way to handle things uh, up in Flint Township, of all places, uh, just west of Flint, where the Genesee County Sheriff, Chris Swanson, yes. uh, basically, uh, you know, met with the protesters there and said, you know, uh, let's not have a protest. Let's have a parade. What do you want me to do? And they said, walk with us. And he said mm. he threw down his gear and mm-hmm. he walked with them for a mile and a half. And this this thing went viral. Somebody got it on video. It went all over the world. This guy is a hero. And a lot of people are saying, why can't we have more of that? 
Right. And I think, and this is part of the thing that we, uh, Police Week was started in 1962 by a Democrat president, um, JFK. He established in 1962, May 15th, as the day to honor the peacekeepers, a.k.a. the men and women behind the badge, who have fallen in the line of duty. And the days surrounding it became known as Police Week. When in 2018, when there was such attacks on our officers is when I, who the closest thing I have to law enforcement is a cousin who is in training for law enforcement. I am just an everyday citizen who was so tired of our police being attacked. And when I talked to Sheriff Bouchard, what can I do? He said, I'd love it if police week became known like Memorial Day. And here's the point. This is an annual week that happens every year to draw attention to the good men and women who serve where they put on the uniform by their own choice. They throw themselves in front of a bullet for their own, by their own choice. And I think when it comes to it, like you referred to this gentleman in Flint, when you go to the men and women in uniform and you ask them the core issue, why are you in public service? They started, the majority of them, I'm not saying all, but the majority of them started out of a desire to serve. It is not every John, Mary, and Sarah that can step into that uniform. And so the men and women that serve in the military, the men and women that serve in the fire department, you name it, it is a gift. It, is a, it really is a calling. And the majority of America would not want their, <laughs> their job if we, you know, if we were, you know, had a gun to our heads. It is a unique role. And the majority of them, like this gentleman in Flint, have incredible hearts that all they want to do is make the community better. And I'm telling you what happened in Minnesota, if it, it grieves your heart and my heart, but the hearts it grieves even, even more are the law enforcement. Because as Sheriff Bouchard said in his powerful statement, is that it does, it puts a stain on 800,000 men and women in uniform. And that's powerful, that the act of one person the act of one person can have such um, a huge impact, but or the act of four officers can have such a huge impact. But let me turn that around. This is what is so amazing, Mr. Ballinger, about America. I heard someone say yesterday, never bet against America. And that if one or four people can have such a huge impact, imagine what one or four people or a thousand people can have for a positive impact. I think it needs more people like you and me asking the hard questions drawing to the surface the positive stories, listening to those who are grieving and hurting and feel like they've been mistreated, and then let's be Americans and work together to make our future better. It sounds cliche, but it's truth that I really think there is a brighter day ahead. Amy Hawkins, do you think there is a chance that something good will come out of this George Floyd incident? I mean, stop and think. Uh, just a few years ago, we had Eric Garner in New York City. Yeah. And uh, he uh, gasped out, uh, I can't breathe, and died. And there was right. a national furor. And yet here we are a couple of years later. George Floyd says, I can't breathe. And he's right. killed. And uh, here we are all over again. I mean, is it going to get any better? I have to believe, um, as I have to believe that there is always, whenever there is horror, I believe there is potential for redemption. And what we have experienced in the last couple of weeks with this situation in Minnesota and just the riots all over the nation, I think partly what's happening is eyes are being opened to the systemic um, brokenness in our communities where there has been 
you know, for a long time, Mr. Ballinger, you and I are rare that we've paid attention to what's going on in politics. The majority of Americans haven't. They haven't taken a care of who gets elected to city council. They haven't taken a care of who gets elected police chief. They haven't taken a care of, you know, what type of community service stuff is going on. But I think this is an opportunity for us to all look ourselves in the mirror and say, wait a second, responsibility starts with my own heart and my own home. And how am I taking care of who, like my own neighborhood? How am I, like, do I give a care of who gets elected to the school board and to the, to be mayor of New York City? Um, Because that type of stuff does matter. So to answer your question, yes, I think that we can definitely have better days ahead. Amy Hawkins, you did a great job of explaining the situation from the police week point of view, the police point of view. Amy Hawkins of Generation Strategies and Police Week Michigan founder, thank you for being our guest on The Political Insider. Thank you, sir. We'll be back next week with still more.